Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Today, we are honored to have with us Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Their book is coming out in this fall. I'm titled Activist Theology, and it is a project that both David and myself are so excited about and just privileged to sit and talk with Robin today more about um, what has led up to this book and how they have found their permission to be. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Now, Robin, before we kind of dive in to the good stuff, there's a question that we have asked all of our guests so far, and that's, it's a completely nonsensical, non-serious question, but uh, that question is, um, inevitably, when your work proliferates and gets huge and sort of changes the world, and inevitably the capitalist machine chooses to, uh, you know, grab it and yeah, and appropriate it and, and, then, and then make a profit off of it, who do you see, or who would your dream person be to portray Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza in the biopic about your life's work? Um, well, I, I think I would say a couple things. One is I, I feel like I'm in the sort of 12th iteration of, of my life and my work. And so there would have to be multiple people. Um, but I think the kind of person uh, it would have to be, it would, it, it would certainly have to be someone who um, uh, was non-white and someone who um, is sort of came from, you know, came from the people, not from not from the top or the oligarchy, right? Um, those are my roots, uh, and I would love for it to be someone from the south. Thank you for that. That was that, thank you for making our sort of nonsensical icebreaker question um, a little more thoughtful, a little more serious, and. Hopefully, I think very relevant to the conversation that we're going to have with you. So, wait a minute, real quick though, why the South? So, I, I mean, I'm originally from Texas, and I know that Texas uh, is not the South. Um, I know that Texas would not not, not ever claim the South, but um, <laughs> no. you know, I have. I, I mean, I grew up in Texas. I spent 26 years in Texas, and so. The South as a region really resonates with me. And in 2016, I left the Bay Area, I left my faculty post in Berkeley to move home to the South. And mm-hmm. um, a good friend of mine really encouraged me to be with the people. I had spent a lifetime in academia. And mm. um, so I'm my, my job now and has been over the last uh, four years since finishing my PhD has been uh, to, to re- recover my roots. And so mm-hmm. the South is one place where I do that. And, mm-hmm. and so the South is a place that I'm choosing and it's complicated and it's not always friendly to my trans queer body. Um, yeah. but it yeah. is a place where I feel called to be. Um, and to do social healing from the place of the South. Mm-hmm. 
Mm, that's awesome and hard. <laughs> yes. Sort of building off that, Robin, you you mentioned, you know, you're on, I think you said the 12th iteration of yourself. And so that that really kind of transitions well to the question that we usually kick things off with. And that's this question pertaining to the title of the podcast, uh, Permission to Be. And so, um, you know, whether it's um, an experience, um, a moment, whether it was a an event or whether it was um, kind of an ongoing series of events, what was the idea, the experience, the epiphany, the relationship, um, the moment even that kind of felt like or that, that you feel like gave you permission to be who you are today or maybe who you've always been, but for whatever reason, real or perceived, you couldn't be before that? Um, so I think it's not just one thing for me and never has been one thing. Um, it, it is, it is having grown up with a Mexican woman, not of this country, um, that who encouraged me to be whoever I wanted to be and was enrolled in Catholic school as a young child and, um, wanted to become an altar boy, but didn't have the right genitalia to do that. And, and had a chance to make my first communion, but had theological questions. So I didn't do that. So I would say, you know, the first, the, the first little bit, um, was that of the first 12 years of my life living with, um, my mother. And so I would say Catholic school and being parented by, a Mexican woman um, would would be one thing that gave me the permission to be. And then I would say uh, when I was living in San Antonio with my dad and at 16 years old had a brain aneurysm and almost lost my life, Mm -hmm. I would say that that was another moment that sort of confirmed to me this call I have on my life. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't explain it more than that. But I, I knew that I had to do work on this earth, and I couldn't sit idly around. And so I would say that started the second iteration, or my move to my, my move to uh, to live with my dad was the second, and this brain aneurysm was okay. the third. Um, so that moment was another moment of learning and embodying the permission to be. Um, and then I would say when these two, um, white cisgendered straight teachers of mine, professors encouraged me to go to grad school and that that was a moment where someone believed in me that I had, uh, some sort of acumen for higher education to go to graduate school. I didn't even know what it was. I, I had to look it up. Uh, on the internet that that was that was before you say I had to Google that. Um, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> but I, but I did have to Google yeah, that, yeah. Um, and I would say that was a moment where I really learned that I had agency and and learned um, that I am on a path and leaned into the permission to be. And then I would mm. say uh, when a dear colleague of mine, who's one of the deans at Duke Divinity School. Um, said, yeah, you really should do PhD work. Um, that was another moment where 
I was like, oh yeah, this is like, this is part of my vocation. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would say though, like there, I, I mean, I've always been evolving and I'm not static. And so there's not one moment, but there are these four or five moments in my life yeah. that, yeah. um, that created conditions for me to be yeah. and to be who I am. Yeah. This radical trans queer Latinx. Thank you. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Like I, I'm sure there's great hardship within that, but like that is just profound to me. I mean, just all the people at these pivotal moments who poured into you and that you were willing to receive it. You know, like it's twofold. You have to, they pour in, but we have to be willing to be yeah. there for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, to think about it theologically, it, it, it is very much providence. And, you know, I know that, I know that lots of people have lots of opinions about providence. Um, but it's, you know, I think I'm a theologian. I think theologically. And, yeah. um, yeah. Sure, I question a whole lot um, all the time. I'm a divine doubter. Um, but all of these moments have helped me lean into who I am today. And I draw on those stories all the time. So identity, I mean, you identify as a Latinx person. Um, yeah, in, in my exposure to your work, you, um, you talk about the concept of intersectionality um, a lot. And... I know um, with, I would say, a limited understanding or at least a, a fairly recent exposure to the concept, I've already um, noticed a danger in the way that the concept can become mm-hmm. appropriated, watered down, and kind of get, getting away from, you know, kind of the original idea, you know, behind it, behind Kimberly Crenshaw's. I mean, uh, one was that written about back in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. So it's been, it's been a couple decades. And, and, my fear with the concept, uh, especially in progressive church bases, which is where Becca and I um, work and, and kind of and commune and navigate, is that um, it can kind of almost become a progressive version of like the word missional or something like that, where it doesn't it, 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 it there was um, there was some really important intentionality behind it uh, in its original iteration, but. Um, but the way that it's sort of been kind of appropriated as this um, buzzword, you, you know, kind of just attack on mm-hmm. any any attempt at inclusivity, justice, or anything like that, and so, and so that's been you know my I don't want to say struggle with it because because as I understand the notion of intersectionality and in its in its original original iteration, uh, I think there's a lot of powerful stuff there. But for you, for you, how? How do you navigate that word? What is that? Um, how, how do you understand that word, and how yeah. does that play into both your identity and and the work you do um, with like supremacy culture and things like that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think about intersectionality without also thinking about oppression and and the ways in which pr- oppression um, functions, um, structural oppression, systematic oppression, and and. I, you know, I think that, I think you are right that mm. intersectionality has become this buzzword. And if, mm-hmm. if you're using it, then it must mean you're, you're sort of cache and, and on, on the cutting edge. And in reality, um, you're probably not, um, folks are probably not using it in a, in a manner 
that advances an, a, a particular analysis around oppression, um, which is mm-hmm. the way I sort of understand um, intersectional feminism and intersectionality as as a method. And you know, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote way back when that intersectionality is to expose the the particular standpoints of um, of people, in particular, uh, black women, mm-hmm. and and to highlight the ways in which they are triply or quadruply oppressed, and and I think we need to bear in mind that Kimberly Crenshaw, as a critical legal scholar, mm-hmm. you know, was reviewing a um, a, a, cor- a court case uh, around how a black woman was being, um, you know, there was sexism involved, there was gender, there was race and how this, the, the black woman in the court case was, mm. was, um, was, was being criminalized because of her identities. We also need not be focused on identity politics because identity politics often often fragments us in a way where where we where we don't mm. fully lean into the robust analysis that intersectionality provides. And so when I think about supremacy culture, um, you know, the, if if intersectionality is the method toward addressing systematic oppression, um, supremacy culture is is the technology mm. Uh, that we should be seeking to dismantle with this intersectional method. And supremacy culture is, I'm, I'm working on some, some new work right now, some curriculum for churches and oh. uh, different communities. Mm-hmm. Um, That's needed. Yeah. But thinking about, uh, just thinking about supremacy culture, because we, we don't, we are not we well we are living in a particular moment where we need to be mindful of oppression and the impact of oppression but we also need to recognize the ways in which we're socialized into supremacy mm-hmm. culture yes and i don't just mean white supremacy i also mean economic supremacy <laughs> and i mean gender supremacy um i mean cis gender supremacy mm-hmm. um and the ways in which Supremacy culture um, really is the taproot uh, to 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 oppression. Um, it's the thing that's fueling the machine. And if we can come together and get a sense about how to uh, destroy the taproot, which I believe is supremacy culture, then maybe we'll have a chance to respond critically to the needs of our planet to the needs of those who are most impacted by oppression, um, to the margins of the margins, and to the least of these. So, <laughs> agree on all those points. And But then the question that comes to mind is, what tools do we provide when people get stuck in their own fragility? To even get to the, I mean, to even hear the word supremacy. I mean, to, let's just take it back yeah. to very basics, you know? Yeah. The, and they hear that word and it just shuts them down. And I'm like, that's such a minute step to the grandeur of what needs to happen. Yeah. And yet I feel like, you know, again, cis white progressives, we just, it's banging, 
banging our heads, you know? Yeah. I mean, every chance I get, I say this and I'll say it here um, one more time that um, liberal white progressives are the most dangerous kind of people. And the reason why that is, is because they have the language Mm. uh, around social justice, but they don't have an analysis around social Mm -hmm. justice. Um, They can say the right thing. um, But as you point out, when they experience white fragility, they shut down and opt out. Mm -hmm. And so instead of divesting from their own privilege, um, oftentimes, you know, liberal white progressives um, will will move around the subject, right? They won't engage it directly. They'll move around. And I believe this is deeply relational work. Um, None of my work is transactional. Mm -hmm. Um, All of my work is uh, really um, supported by three pillars of harm reduction, solidarity, and collective liberation. And so even when we encounter white Mm -hmm. fragility, um, we need to bear in mind the three pillars of, of the work, mm. harm reduction, solidarity, and collective liberation, and figure out how to build bridges in spite of our differences or in light mm-hmm. of our differences. Um, this work takes time. Mm. And yes, saying the word supremacy in any fashion, it startles yeah. the dominant yeah. culture. And that's because um, the dominant culture has been fed a lie. And that lie is that they're on top. And what they don't realize is that not only are they complicit Mm -hmm. and conscripted into the lie, but the lie is harming them. And so the work of Mm -hmm. uh, building bridges across lines of radical difference is the work of harm reduction. Um, and that, and that's also the work of dismantling supremacy culture. And so when we can build bridges and when we can do this deeply relational work, um, it's really what the activist theology project is all about, which is, um, responding to pressing social concerns Mm -hmm. and doing so in a deeply embodied and relational way. Mm -hmm. I think the missing link to activist theology, which is this sort of idea that I've written about and an idea that I speak about often the missing link to activist theology is um, the wisdom of the body. Mm. And if we're going to achieve collective liberation and if we're going to achieve social healing, which is really the work that I'm about, we have to figure out how to include the body. And so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about somatics right now, somatics for social healing, somatics for social justice. Mm. And we, you know, the dominant culture and people of color, all of us, we have to think about the wisdom of our body and the and the ways in which our body has been um, socialized, yeah. the ways that our body has been colonized, and how do we decolonize our bodies and our minds to get to this place so that we can kill the taproot, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we could talk for, you could talk for hours about that. Um <laughs> Yeah. And I would gladly listen to every word. And, and I do Thank want to you. dive in. You know, you know, you started to bring up your project, Activist Theology, uh, which includes the upcoming book. But before we do, I will. Uh, I don't want to let us, uh, and I, and I do mean us, um, white liberal progressives, off the hook quite yet. Uh, specifically, uh, and, and maybe you already were doing this, but you know, you're kind of talking about white liberal progressives more generally. But I want to talk about specifically white liberal 
Christians or white liberal churches. Yeah. And so, so as you know, as you explore supremacy culture and and uh, in your experience, you know, you know, in as a theologian um, and as someone who's kind of working at the intersection of of justice and theology and oppression and theology, you know, so on and so forth. Where are the big blind spots? Like, like specifically, um, like, like for example, in, in in my experience, in our in our in our situation, there's there, there's a lot of energy around dismantling white supremacy in the abstract. But then, but then when you start to really kind of you know kind of look beneath the surface and and what white supremacy is revealed to be is more than just personal prejudice. Right. Uh, when you when you're getting to the systemic roots of it, you know the, the places where you know where like capitalism, for example, be, is is inextricably bound with with white supremacy and, and, and things like that. That's really when I start to see you know in our context this, the the conversation shut down. Yeah. Um, you, you know it's. It's it's great for us to kind of collectively work on our individual prejudices, but there's almost that inability to maybe make that jump to the conditions you know that give rise to those prejudices or those um, unconscious assumptions and things like that. And so, yeah, so yeah, that's one example. But what what have you seen? What has your experience been? Well, I mean, I I do think I do think it's true that when we feel threatened about our money because um, we believe that's ours. We live in a very me, me, me framework, right? Um, Just like the land? We, you know, we private property, um, money has been privatized and, and secured for the individual success and we don't know anything else Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think this is very dangerous because what it creates is it creates a sentiment of when we see people on the side of the road asking for money our internal narrative is well like why do they look so good asking for money Mm -hmm. or haven't they worked yep haven't they tried Mm -hmm. Instead of a more open, you know, sort of sentiment of sharing wealth and creating communities mm-hmm. that flatten economic hierarchies, money is a, money is racialized. Money is wrapped up in religion. Um, uh, money is. Money is bad, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, uh, I and, yeah. and and also like we sure. can't live without it is <laughs> is the other thing, right? Well, yeah, because that's what our world has been created upon, right? Right. So, you know, the 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 exchange of social capital is the thing that fuels a lot of supremacy cultures, and 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 the work that we have to do is to continue to peel back this onion and continue to educate people that if you are part of the owning class, which is the dominant culture, then your work is to divest and your Mm. work is to invest um, in communities of color and marginalized communities um, that Mm. don't have the same access. Right. 
Um, You know, my, my collaborative project, activist theology project is a project that is trying to be very, um, we're trying to be very aware that social cap, the exchange of social capital is the thing that allows us to function. And also, um, I'm not trying to get rich on this, right? Mm-mm. I'm trying to figure out how to build social capital to fund the movement in critical ways and to be able to give my service away for free. Mm. Um, that takes a lot of time and effort and intentionality. And it takes a, it takes a particular disposition um, to the work. And if, you know, if the dominant culture is really invested in figuring out how to deal with their fragility and how to move the movement, you can start with the conversation on money. Mm-hmm. What's our relationship to money? What, how, how do we spend it? How do we don't spend it? What are we taught about money? What is our value about money? Um, and then let's talk about mm-hmm. race and racism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about housing mm-hmm. and who has access to housing. And then let's talk about land, right? Yeah. But so much of it starts with money and how do we make meaning about money? Um, mm-hmm. and, and what are we doing with our money? Not talking about it because it's not polite. That's what we're right. doing with it. Yeah. Which is a very white culture thing yeah. to do, yeah. right? We yeah. don't talk about money. Um, nobody discusses how much they make. Um, no one wants to talk about how much they spend at yeah. Whole Foods when they <laughs> yeah. went. We all know that it's fucking expensive <laughs> to shop there. But we're all yeah. invested in bougie organic food. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and, I, and I am too, right? I shop at Whole Foods or, or the other organic store here. And I shop there because I believe that our food is killing us. <laughs> yes. And I believe that if we don't begin to mm-hmm. shift our food practices, which are wrapped up in money uh, yep. and wrapped up in global trade, Yep. Then I mean it's it's all interconnected, oh. right? This is this is this is the interconnectedness of of this shit show, basically. Oh, completely a shit show. And and we have to start somewhere. Oh. Amen. <laughs> like I just ugh. <laughs> start growling. That <laughs> just makes me so because it's like those layers that you were talking about. You just peel yeah. them and peel them and peel them and peel them. And yeah. damn it. It's just it is so entrenched. It, we're just, you just don't know. I mean, it feels like almost to the molecule how money is just seeped in there. I was going to say, well, let's, you know, you got to start somewhere. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about, Robin, the ways that you have started. So you've already brought up uh, the activist theology project. So, so let's start there. What is uh, your project with activist theology? Um, kind of first, you know, the project in general, and then specifically we can start getting into uh, the book that'll be coming out in a few months and kind of what you hope comes from that. Yeah. So the activist theology project is a collaborative project based here in Nashville and we're creating our digital footprint currently and creating some resources um, around dismantling supremacy culture and looking at um, looking at the ways in which public theology can be social healing and then looking at bridge building and the we're we're looking to host some convenings 
around social healing and to really dig into the work of healing, social healing, civic engagement um, through theology mm-hmm. and through through my sort of development of activist theology, which is a sort of offshoot of liberation theology, takes liberation theology very seriously um, and some other theoretical models that I've been trained in. Um, intersectionality is one, queer theory is another, um, sort of looking at Marxism mm-hmm. and the ways in which we can engage Marxist theories. And, and so it's, it's, really, um, it's really the next step from my book, right? I wrote the book. Um, it's a book of story, and it has incredible poetry from my um, dear friend and poet, Rebel, uh, a St. Louis-based activist and organizer. And I wrote the book, I wrote, the, I wrote a collection of stories as, as a way to rethink theology and ethics. And it's, it's a book of deep translation of theology and ethics. Mm-hmm. I think that, sure, mm-hmm. we can sit around and read books all day, but if we actually don't know how to embody the theory, we then don't know how to live the practice. And so the book is translation of theory to practice, mm-hmm. theology to praxis. And um, I believe the missing link in activist theology, which I've been um, embedded in sort of theoretically, um, is somatics and Mm. figuring out the ways in which the body uh, becomes the organizing technology for social healing and for social change. So um, activist theology is a book and it's um, a theory and it's a praxis. And it's also this project, this collaborative project that I'm doing here in Nashville. Really for anyone who uh, is listening and doesn't know somatics, um, like body work, movement studies, um, you know, the word soma, you know, the body. Um, is there anything you would add to kind of clarify for anyone um, about somatics? Um, yeah, somatics is 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 bodily wisdom, right? Learning, l- learning. It's movement. It's it's learning how to be embodied, really. Um, and I'm deep into storytelling, and the Activist Theology Project is a collaborative project that is rooted in storytelling. And so, um, what what does our body tell us? What is the story there? Um, I went to a somatics class this morning, and for an hour, I learned about gravity. Mm. And I learned about the relationship my body has with gravity. Um, how might these tools really help us live out our intentions yeah. or our faith or our spirituality, right? So this is what the Activist Theology Project is doing, um, creating resources for other people to have access to it. Excellent. Could you speak more to the theology part of activist theology? Because one thing I've noticed, um, you know, in in some of our circles here is there's a general cynicism towards the church, towards the theological, towards the spiritual. Um, There's some people who, you know, I think, you know, they would be right there with you as far as naming the challenge, naming, you know, seeing the layers that need to be peeled back, you know, when, when it comes to things like supremacy culture. And yet, and yet they've lost hope in, I guess for lack of a better word, in God, you know, when it comes to, you know, navigating and addressing these things. And so, and so, you know, so maybe they're leaving the church for, 
um, you know, for the political realm or for, um, you know, parachurch and nonprofit organizations. And not that those are mutually exclusive categories. If anything, I would, you know, there's, there's times I want the church to be more politically active, but, but yep. I have a conviction and some of it I'm sure is based out of insecurity because, you know, it goes back to the money like we've been talking about. I mean, my, mm-hmm. on a vocational level, you know, this is kind of how I pay the bills is, is, is in this church space. But, but I also have a, a personal conviction that theology, spirituality, um, it gives us categories to, to name and to challenge and to organize and to, and to work um, and really to transform uh, the imagination a little bit, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, the challenges, you know, before us both individually and collectively. Um, so for you, 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 you know, um, you know, there's plenty of activists, but there's not a lot of activist theologians. Yeah. So where does the theology part, you know, kind of mm-hmm. intersect for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I would say it's all about imagination, moral imagination, uh, moral courage. Um, my academic partner, who is a black queer ethicist, um, says imagination is the best thing we have on our sides. So I believe that. So activist theology, the theology part, um, let, I'll just define theology. The, my sense, my understanding, my definition of theology is that theology is an open discourse concerning meaning and value in an ultimate sense. And you know, theology is like, how do we make sense of yeah. this stuff? We're, you know, and we're constantly mm-hmm. making theological claims yeah. um, uh, about everything. And, and so if, if we're doing that, then we're also living in a certain way. And so I believe all theology is ethics, that we're, that we're living out these values and this meaning-making in particular ways. And when, when our social practices come into contact with with other bodies, other people, other communities, there is there is an inevitable impact or consequence, mm-hmm. and so we have to be thinking always about what are the values that we're living, mm-hmm. what is the theology that we're living, and how do we create a deeply relational exchange with our values? Mm-hmm. So, the theology part of of activist theology. Um, is that there is no activism without mm. theology and no theology without activism. That if all theology is ethics, then then all theology is lived practice. Mm. And all theology has this potential to be not just be political, but to be activist-oriented. Um, and and the, the pieces in the book that I talk about are my own sort of journey in becoming a theological activist or an activist theologian. And it is talking about the deafening silence of my father when I asked about um, him hiring undocumented workers for his ranch in Texas, mm-hmm. um, thinking about um, the, the different, the different evolutions of slavery mm-hmm. and thinking about um immigration and so the the theology piece is wrapped up in in sort of constructive questions Mm -hmm. that I brought from my from my own life and my own sort of coming into existence with becoming a theologian Mm -hmm. um and 
And I think that most mm. of us don't think about theology as activism. Not at uh, all. We think theology is for the academy. Yep. We think theology is something that um, clerics do. And my book really was like, we're all theologians because mm-hmm. we all have these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how do we, how do we build a community of accountability with our questions so that we can live in such a way mm, to excellent. mobilize folks for radical social change? Mm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That has always been my narrative. Theology is exactly what you said. It's for the person who's up front. It's for the people who have gone to school. It is not applicable to anybody sitting in the proverbial pew. And another another layer that needs to be peeled back, another awakening that needs to happen, um, the complicitness of some of us who have been raised in a more um, evangelical fundamentalist nature, um, being willing to evolve past um, the comfort of where we sit. Yeah. Mm, that's good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, that's my background, right? I mean, I, I, um, I went to a Southern Baptist church growing up while I was attending Catholic school and, um, yeah, I mean, I was socialized into evangelical fundamentalism and, you know, thankfully when I went to college, I went with a lot of questions mm. and, began reading a lot of theology in college. My undergrad is in theology. And, you know, I really believe in this discourse and I, I really I, I believe it on a core, core level. Um, mm. But I saw through the lie of evangelical fundamentalism. It's, it's the tyranny of certainty. And when we're wedded to the tyranny of certainty, um, we behave badly and, and we yeah. contribute to supremacy culture. <laughs> yes. And we thank God as a white man up in the sky. Yes, I did. I be honest in some ways I'm a little jealous because I never questioned. I never even thought to question. I and I think part of that, you know, it was personal anxiety, fear, what have you, having a father who was a Southern Baptist minister. Um, it was just a given and somehow I found comfort in that fear and we have to step out and question because there's so much dang peace on the other side of it. Yeah. Um I can definitely relate to that. Robin, uh, I've heard you say this uh, more than once. Um, You've you've talked about the contrast between a charlatan and a revolutionary. And I'm sure you've touched on it at a few points, you know, in our conversation already. But if you were going to put out a... I don't know, like a, like a one pager on, on what, these are the marks of a revolutionary. If someone, you know, whether it's to unmask, you know, maybe someone who, you know, maybe feels like they're, you know, that's who they are because they know the language, they know the buzzwords, um, or on a very practical level, if you were, if you were leading a workshop on, on revolutionary discourse, revolutionary action, Mm -hmm. um, because I know I, and I'm, I'm, I'm tempted by this as well. Kind of the, the, maybe the naive optimism that, that, you know, revolution, that sounds drastic. What if we, well, what if we reform this? Mm -hmm. And what if we, what if we tweak that? And, and kind of the, the complacency of incremental change, Mm -hmm. but that complacency almost immediately is complicity. (laughs) And so, and so, and so, 
So yeah, what would the what what would the marks of 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 a revolutionary for you be? I think the marks are an abolitionist spirit, um, and that abolitionist spirit comes from comes from being and believing that we can just reform systems, but really this the system is flawed. Mm-hmm. So maybe we just need to burn it down and start again. So I think being a revolutionary is is having an abolitionist spirit. Um, I think it's also one who is very weary of power mm-hmm. and and aware that power is toxic and and corrupts. Um, I think a revolutionary is um, someone who is who is willing to say the hard things and, and not just um, say the hard things with an analysis and not just um, using language to advance your project or your ego. I think a revolutionary is tactical Mm -hmm. and strategic and does things with deep intention. Mm. And I think the final thing I'll say about, that is a, a revolutionary is for the people, mm. not for the institution and not for the machine. Yeah. And I think being a revolutionary is a spiritual discipline. Mm, I like that. I do too. It's, it's, it is a practice that has to be built upon day after day after day after day. Yeah. Consistency and persistence. Yeah. So Robin, one question that I've, I've, been asking all of our guests and that I'm keenly interested in hearing from you is, um, you know, kind of in this journey you've been on in the work that you do, you know, you know, the space that you occupy both, you know, kind of politically and theologically, um, what does the word salvation mean to you? Um, obviously it's a, it's a pretty loaded concept within the Christian tradition. And, um, I think it's a category that at least in our context, in our, in our, uh, church space, not a lot of people necessarily know what to do with it, you know, and you, know, you kind of move past the the cliches and the tropes, the penal substitution, the, you know, kind of the, the postmortem escapism of, you know, maybe what a lot of our people were raised with. And yet you still have this, this concept or this idea that was, you know, at least very near and dear to the early church. And, and okay. so not to reduce it to any one thing necessarily, but, but, you know, we're talking to you. So for you, what would salvation look like? What does salvation mean to you through a lens of activist theology? Mm, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think about the early church, the, the sort of dependency that they needed on um, a God who redeems, and and which is why substitutionary penal, all those things, um, those atonement theories um, gain so much traction. Mm-hmm. And why we have gotten into the tyranny of certainty. But when I think about salvation through a lens of activist theology, um, I think about how if we can learn to be human with one another again, that might be our salvation. And if we can figure out how to restore ourselves to be human with one another again, we might redeem our, our human community and our, and our planet. Um, and so I think, I think activist theology thinks a lot about salvation, but 
not from a top-down mm-hmm. perspective, from a place of um, from a place of deep compassion, and from a place of um, if the divine lives within all of us, then shouldn't we be compelled to relate with our neighbor in ways that might bring about their deepest, most radical flourishing? Mm. Well said. Thank you for that. Robin, thank you. Thank you. This is for being willing. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to come and, and just sit and pour truth in (laughs) to the world. Yeah. Let's, let's keep the conversation going. Right. I mean, this is what it takes to do the social healing that I think we all need is to be able to have these hard conversations and to really learn how to sit with one another. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to come hang out with y'all in Charlotte and, and, and do something that, that generates um, the good work that, that we're yeah, all about. Definitely. Thank you. And um, everybody don't forget to um, go check out Robin's new book on Amazon. It is activist theology. As you've heard here, it, it can't be anything but amazing. So you need to order it now. <laughs> you know, Amazon's got that great program where you can pre-order it and have their book right at your doorstep. Um, when it is released. So don't miss out on that. You can pre-order it, I think, well, for sure on Amazon, maybe on Fortress. And um, you'll soon be able to pre-order the book on the Activist Theology website. um, And you'll get like the book, curriculum, and I don't know what else, but we're going to do a bundled thing. Um, And course i'm looking for folks who want to be on the street team to get the word out and um i have a, a email list that um, i'm collecting you know i'm looking for like 40 or 50 people who want to get an advanced copy of the book um, electronically and start tweeting about it or you know talking to their friends about it to drum up the stuff and of course Love to come to Charlotte and hang out once a book comes out to, to do an event. And um, you can find me at irobin.com, which is my website. Um, you can find the Activist Theology Project online. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at irobin, and that's um, the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N. Um, as always, we are um, so grateful for our listeners And um, again, thank you, Robin. And we look forward to having you in Charlotte um, in person um, to hear your voice here. I think, again, is a much needed um, voice that just needs to be continued um, to pour down into the world. And so I suggest if you're listening to this podcast and you attend a church, you attend, you have a nonprofit where you bring speakers in go um, to Robin's page. Their link is will be on the show notes. And you, I'm sure Robin um, would love to chat with you about being able to bring their voice to your community. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, 
we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.